Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanwell Major. And today is Remembrance Day. And so I thought I'd take some time to talk about my take on what Remembrance Day is about, the military service that I did um, as part of my life plans when I was around 18 years old. I was three years in the Royal Naval uh, University unit in the UK. So very much if there was a list of 100 people to go and fight a war, uh, I think the students that are driving the patrol boats for at university um, would be like number 101. But it was definitely a path that led towards that and one that at the time I was very engaged in taking. So um, I did have to think for myself, did I want to be in the military? Did I not want to be in the military? Um, I made a choice in the end that I didn't, but I'd love to talk about where that feeling of patriotism and feeling of the importance of some values led me instead, which I think is still a kind of honorable, honorable path. So Remembrance Day, I think, is becoming, it's becoming a little bit uh, opaque in that uh, if you're not uh, of an age that you had parents that remembered the war directly, um, if you're not somebody who's in the military or got strong military ties, Remembrance Day kind of happens in your local town and you may or may not go. Obviously, if it was 30 or 40 years ago, most people are going. And if it's 70 years ago, everybody's going. So it's becoming a little bit thinner as we go over time. But what is it exactly that we're trying to remember? If I think about it as just a cold slice, there's going to be some old veterans in darkened sunglasses and lots of medals and, and caps and berets and all sorts of designations of military attire that I kind of know and kind of don't know. And some will be in wheelchairs and there seem to be less and less. And there's lots of bowed heads and I kind of I know what Remembrance Day is like about to go and experience, but I was trying to get to the bottom of is it still relevant today? And I started to think a little bit about who is it that we're trying to remember? Yes, it's people going off to war. We've seen films. There's not much footage from that time. And what there is, I kind of I think it distances us a little bit. It's all black and white and grainy. It doesn't seem very real. But of course, it was full color. It was full techno color. It was just as real a life as anything that we are living now. It seems a pretty obvious thing to say, but I was looking at that a little bit more and thinking, you know, if you're in North America living now in 2021, your general political and economic kind of worldview, religious kind of a difference, maybe religions changed a little bit over time, but the, the general kind of gist of where the civilization you're living in is at is uh, very, very similar between people in 1930 and people in 2020. So 90 years on, it's pretty much the same. We haven't had massive regime changes and we haven't had massive diversions. If you look at something like the Second World War, particularly, um, the people that were living then, you know, if they got up in the morning with, a, with an electric alarm clock, if they went and brushed their teeth and had a shower in a kind of very similar situation to what we've got going on, if they went downstairs and listened to the radio whilst they opened a telegram or opened a letter, um, and if their automatic washing machine's going around, that's a very similar situation to, you know, the life I'm living now. That is not so distant that I can't understand it. It's not like medieval hovels. It's people that are just kind of back around the bend somewhere. They were doing pretty much the same thing. I get up, I go to the bathroom, I get downstairs, I put the coffee on, the radio's playing and I'm reading a text. It's not that much different. So somebody who does a lot of the things that you do each day in a very similar way from the same general political uh, sphere that you live in, certainly 
So people with the general idea of how things work that you have, that do the kind of things, things every day that you do, um, experience the same love and affection for the people around them, have the same depth of degree of you know, planning for their future and all the rest of this stuff, they suddenly got caught up in this situation where the entire world basically went to war. At the time in 1939, obviously they'd gone through the Great War only a few decades before, and that was very, very new. But that was the the Great War was always called that because it is it was the greatest war ever. It was the final war, supposedly, after many, many hundreds of years of spats all around the world. It was like, let's get it sorted out. That theoretically was what was going on. But suddenly, you know, only 15, 16, 17 years later, the political situation changes and we start to get into it like it's going to happen again. And people knew this could get very bad very quickly. And people that have the same general political views that you do in full color, you know, using all the same kind of gadgetry you have, give or take, um, with very similar connections with the people around them, got dragged into going off into this war. And what happened to those people needs to be remembered. We do remember veterans of the wars and we say, thank you so much for, for what they did to save us. But what did that really mean? A lot of these people were drafted in or volunteered to go and do this thing. They marched off to go and get involved in this battle. Now, how that politically came about, what long-term historical processes led to that, that's all an aside from a human point of view. At the moment, you know, what, what's my job? I have a sail charter company, I enjoy yacht racing, and I have a part-time radio show, something like that, right? That Someone could have that job description in the 1930s. So this now, I get a letter through the door which says, you have to go off and fight in this battle to save the general same political situation that you and I have now and to save the people around you for whom they felt the same as we feel about the people around us now. And they went and did it. And what they got dragged into was this nightmare scenario where tens of millions of people died just as had happened in the Great War before that, just had always been happening. And the sacrifice that they made, it starts to dim through time and it be, starts to be on the other side of films really and on the other side of received stories from long ago and, and uh, basically forgotten relatives, um, pictures and books, a general feeling like, yes, yes, the Remembrance Day, it's, um, it's happening downtown this morning, isn't it? It's that kind of thing. I think if we drag it back into the real, we start to realize what these people did, how incredible it was. So I, I go through all of this now, We've, you know, it's eight minutes of me chatting away, but what did it come down to? When I was um, 18, I wanted to join the Navy because I wanted to do what I could to help the scenario that I saw as very positive that I lived in. There's all sorts of things wrong with the way the UK works in lots and lots of ways. Of course, we could go on for many hours about the history of the UK, but as a general political system, it seemed to be like kind of working and kind of good. And I saw that although there's always a push backwards and forwards in the various political parties, that tussling around the center, the center of what people generally in that country want, that tussle's necessary. As long as things don't get too partisan and too binary, um, that, that tussle is very, very necessary. But the general thing of what was going on was worth fighting for. But I had gone through my education in, in the UK and favored being involved with English and literature and that kind of thing. And I had studied at great length the poems of a guy called Wilfred 
Owen. And if you haven't heard of Wilfred Owen before, um, he unfortunately died one week before the armistice in the First World War, which on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. So uh, he died really close to the end of the thing that he had been fighting and fighting in his own way to try and open, open the can of worms on. There was a feeling at that time that this um, sentiment, one of his most famous poems called um, Dulciet decorum est pro patria mori. It's Latin, but what it means is it's fitting and sweet to die for one's country. It's literally like a slogan tagline from the advertising of the time, from the general sentiment of the time, from the way that literature was set up. It was this kind of overriding um, spin, we call it now, which said it's fitting and sweet in the language of the time to die for one's country. So like, oh, galloping off to war sounds like so much fun. We should all go and do it. Of course, we know behind the scenes, giant governmental bodies, giant corporate entities and large family entities, which are behind the political system. Look in the in the Europe, the, the Habsburg family are so inbred with each other that they have something called Habsburg jaw, which is genetically spread across that family because the kings and queens of Europe for hundreds of years came from the same family. They're all interconnected with each other, all fighting each other to, to make money and to move money around and to create wealth transfer moments. Um, that's what happens in a lot of wars. We have to open, yes, of course, it's also based on the fact that we want the general political system where we live to be positive and we want people that we love to not be at risk. But, you know, that was the same before as it is now. But the general things which are in motion is when one country gets too too binary, too polar, and internally it starts to fall down, the crazies take over, or it's just the movement of these massive tidal forces, which are too big for anybody to really comprehend, apart from those that are engaged in it, like the Habsburg family. So them going away and getting involved in this stuff was as alien to them as it would be to us now. But they went and did it. And uh, a slogan, uh, a tagline like Dulciet de Cormas, Perpetua Mori, is part of the conditioning of like getting people ready for, yes, and we're going to go and do this thing and we can defend the country and everything else. But it's still something where there were professional soldiers and there was also the general populace. So I looked up here a little bit of information about um, the conscription and how conscription came in and how it can end up that you started um, fighting for your country. And then we start to look a little bit at where veterans are at from these, you know, these big wars that happened, like the First World War, Second World War, that kind of thing. So conscription, it says, is a mandatory enlistment in a country's armed forces and is sometimes referred to as the draft. Okay, so we know this. So it looks like um, in the 1790s, it was the first modern draft during the French uh, Revolution, um, but it has been dated back like thousands of years to Mesopotamia. Uh, in the Babylonian um, societies, you had something called Ilkum, um, which was created under the ancient code of Hammurabi, which was the earliest and most complete set of legal codes. And what it was is they had just where laborers owing military service to the royal officials for the right to own land. So you'd say, yeah, OK, if you need me to um, fight in your army, then I'll do it. Um, but the, the deal is I get land or I get the right to own land. So that'd be yeah, cool. That's why we still have real estate that's uh, from royalty, right? It's royal states, how much you can get off the king and what you're going to pay. The deal was I'll fight in your war if I can own land. And similar systems of military conscription were popular in feudal Europe 
uh, throughout the Middle Ages, land-owning peasants often required to provide one man per family for military duty. So you kind of like get you all like pointing each other or something. But what it means then is that you you know the deal. So when does it start getting weird? It starts to get a little bit weird in um, in the U.S. We had the draft riots, which was uh, during the conscription for the American Civil War. Um, as it went into its third year, they were they were getting low on manpower, so they needed to call people in. So the act that was put through called for registration of uh, all the men between 20 and 45. Um, but because people could dip out of it and find ways politically out of it or pay this or pay that, basically what happened is the poor people between 20 and 45 had to go off and fight this war, right? Everyone else could get out of it. The wealthier people could just uh, hire a substitute um, to take their place for it. So just pay somebody, go and do it for you if you've got enough cash uh, or pay $300 for draft exemption. In 1863, they had the New York draft riots where about 120 people uh, died. Uh, many of the rioters were poor Irish immigrants because they were getting laden with this thing. They couldn't get out of it. So when we start to get up to uh, the, the more modern day, the First World War and the Second World War, Woodrow Wilson signs the Selective Services Act in 1917, uh, in 1917 and that's in preparation for the U.S. getting into World War One, which was already raging in Europe. The people with the same kind of general political ideals and the same, same kind of family values were fighting against a foe on the other side of the Atlantic, which was so dangerous that if it took over the world, it would destroy the same kind of ideas that we have now. They had the same kind of revulsion for that as we do now. And they were in a situation where under this, um, the beginning of the laws that allowed for people to be drafted into the army en masse to fight these these huge world wars, we all kind of like look around and say, well, who's going to join the military now? Never thinking that actually there may be a letter that could arrive at your door that says you have to go and do it. Like you live in this country, you got to go and do it. You know, what What would you do? It's They, they lived and say, let's, let's, Bring this all down to so 1939, 1940, 1941, whichever part of the world you're in, you're moving into the Second World War. You have the same kind of gadgets in your house. You've got families and friends and you go and see people on Sunday, just like we do now. You listen to the radio, you go and do the gardening. You've got a little boat, you enjoy sailing and you've got a little company. It's uh, chartering some boats and you sometimes work as a radio DJ and everything's pretty much the same as it is now. And then I get a letter through the door, which says you must go on this date and you're going to go to another country and basically you're going to be murdered so that all of this stuff that you're enjoying, it can all be uh, it can all be kept safe. Otherwise, these crazy people from this other part of the world are going to take over. So when I think about that stuff on Remembrance Day, I try to remember like the past is very, very similar to what's going on now. And that threat arose in such a way which we see all these things kind of, oh, what's China doing today? And oh, what's happening in Syria? And But you're not actually thinking, Jesus, I may actually have to go off and get involved in that. So we start to get a little bit of a feeling of um, the fact there was spin back in the day, the fact that there was um, people like uh, Wilfred Owen who were talking out about um, what was going on on the front lines, who was starting to spill the beans as he was uh, accused. Um, they said that he was spilling the beans on war. He was uh, all sucked sugar candy and spilt milk about it. Like, oh, well, he's too soft to go and fight in the war. What he was pointing out is this is utter hell. So on a day like Remembrance Day, 
with this education in people like Wilfred Owen. I'm going to read some of his poems in a second. And um, I want you to think about the words going into this. These are quite explicit poems written by somebody who was there at the time. So where does Wilfred Owen fit into that scene? I don't know if you know of people like Joe Rogan or Russell Brand or... um... Ben Shapiro, but some political commentators who are scattered around on YouTube, every one of them has a different position that they're taking up, but altogether they're roughly within the general socioeconomic, religious kind of family ties situation that we're in. They're not like out and out Nazis or attempting to take over the world. They're generally in the same kind of democratic, capitalistic zone that we are, but within that there's obviously lots of different little groups. These people are speaking out in their way about the things that they're very, very impassioned about. And uh, they're talking about big corporate um, uh, kind of pushing the world around of the inner workings of governments. And is it really, should we really be trusting it? Um, they are speaking out in a way which is exactly what Wilfred Owen and Rudyard Kipling and these war poets were doing in 1917, 1918 on the Western Front. They are making their voices heard from a point of that they know what's going to happen if this continues to be part of the world. They want to shock people into considering that there are real people out there paying this price. And that's to say the other layers that I put onto this just to try and draw it into the, uh, the more modern realm. In 1918, and again, in 1939, 1914, people were fighting wars only 15 or 20 years apart where normal everyday people like you and I were getting letters through the door, which meant we had to go off to basically be machine gun fodder. And there was a slim chance of survival if you were in very particular circumstances or you were somehow particularly skilled. The effects on those everyday people that did survive and came back are also come through in one of the other poems I'm going to read here called Mental Cases, which is, again, very explicit. But it's written by someone that was there at the time, a political, not a political correspondent, a philosophical correspondent, talking about what it was like to be there in the same way that we have those people in our commentary now. They had the same general experience of being alive and they, they got stuck in this situation. They trying to send us that message. Remembrance Day for me is about thinking about that whole block of time that is only 90 years ago, 100 years ago, where people were going through this terrible thing that just suddenly came upon them. And it makes me want to really, really protect the delicate balance that came out of that amazing sacrifice that they made. They made that sacrifice. They pushed back those forces that were threatening to destabilize all of the general kind of ideas that we all listening to this basically share about the goodness and looking after people and not sending them off to gas chambers or having them killed by the millions or that's not how civilization should be. But there are people that believe it should be that way. And so if a letter comes through your door, would you now go and fight in that way, in the way that those people did? Should we remember that sacrifice for what it was, which people just like you and I going and doing that? Okay, so I'm going to read this uh, poem to you now. It's uh, it's called Mental Cases. It's by Wilfred Owen, and uh, I do not apologize for how explicit this poem is. There's no swear words in it or anything like that, but if you've got children listening or people who might be uh, affected by something like this, this is a graphic representation of the things that people saw as part of their conscripted service in the First World War. And Wilfred Owen's reasoning for um, conveying his message in this way 
was to try and open the can of worms to reveal what was happening. You know, people were just cheering people off on trains to go off to war. And then some people would come home and there was no therapy. There was no discussion about it. It's just dulcet decorum est. So his decision to use the words in this is not from a place of trying to shock. Well, not trying to discuss the uh, listener. Uh, it's about trying to inform them. This is what happens to people who get affected. Um, normal people, everyday people like us who go off to fight, these are the sort of things they have to go through. So here's Wilfred Owen's poem, Mental Cases. Who are these? Why sit they here in twilight? Wherefore rock they, pugatorial shadows, drooping tongues from jaws that slob their relish, bearing teeth that leer like skull's teeth wicked? Stroke on stroke of pain, but what slow panic gouge these chasms round their fretted sockets. Ever, from their hair and through their hands' palms, misery swelters. Surely we have perished sleeping in walk hell, but who are these hellish? These are men whose minds the dead have ravished, memory fingers in their hair of murders, multitudinous murders they once witnessed, wading sloughs of flesh these helpless wonder, treading blood from lungs that had loved laughter. Always they must see these things and hear them, the batter of guns and shatter of flying muscles, carnage incomparable and human squander rocked too thick for these men's extrication. Therefore still their eyeballs shrink tormented back into their brains, because on their sense sunlight seems a blood smear, night comes blood black, Dawn breaks open like a wound that bleeds afresh. Thus their heads wear this hilarious, hideous, awful falseness of set smiling corpses. Thus their hands are plucking at each other, picking at the rope knots of their scourging, snatching after us who smote them, brother, pouring us who dealt them war and madness. So Owen's use of both language and imagery in there is you know the, the stuff that you study in school to understand how people communicate but clearly he's gone to great lengths to give a very um clear understanding for the reader what exactly these people had to go through um as part of their conscripted service when people say they're a veteran what does that really mean that they they went off on a train and they got on a ferry and then they went some other place and they were standing in a trench and shooting over the step and it's all a bit black adder, all a bit uh, like the films we've seen. But the reality of it was enough to totally destroy the psyche of those who were even lucky enough to come back. So it wasn't really just about surviving the body surviving. It was also about whether the mind could survive. I wonder, could you, if you went through something like that, if you got the letter? Then when I think about people that are going into the uh, military now and are veterans from wars later than the Second World War. You've got constant conflicts all around the world in which peacekeeping forces are going in, getting involved. Are they always getting it right? No. Are they always uh, making the best decisions? No. Are they making decisions that we perhaps as a civilized, as you know, the general public would make? Well, not to a person, no. But they are doing what the government we put in place decides 
and we do have some control over that. So there's at least a kind of feeling of a framework of control here. So generally, we think that what they're doing is going and doing roughly what we think they should be doing. Do you absolutely agree with all of the movements of the army? But we presume and hope and the system is set up so that these young people that volunteer to go and be in the military are carrying out generally the wishes of a socio-political um, group that is very similar to us. That's the deal, right? We all kind of live in these communities of people. We roughly agree with the socio-political situation around us. We've already established that it's very similar to the socio-political situations of people in the Second and First World War. They're still doing that now. It's not a perfect system, but there's people still out there fighting for that. And those people then are affected in the same way as the people that Wilfred Owen is describing over 100 years ago. It's less so that they get drawn from the public in the way they did before, but people at quite a young age feel they really want to go and fight for a particular set of ideals and beliefs that they feel is really, really important. And if you don't go and fight in the military, that's okay. But uh, you have to understand that if your guess is that it's not really that important, you better hope you're right. Because... Uh, if you're wrong, it gets really bad really quickly. That's the problem with navies and air forces and budgets for defense and all this kind of stuff. What we're all hoping is that it's not really required. The worry is, if it is required, <laughs> we don't understand that and we get rid of it all, it gets really bad really quickly. So what we've sort of settled down to is that we've got professional area of our civilization where people volunteer on the whole to go and be involved in that and to fight like that. And we kind of... You know, in some ways, people like take the piss out of the military and they've got sort of lots of stereotypes. But at the very core of it, people that go and join the military, they really believe in the stuff that you believe in. But they're actually willing to step forward and do something about it. They're actually willing to step up and go and be on that ship that fires that missile or goes into that area where there's conflict or flies that helicopter or gets on the ground and pushes back uh, a group of people that are ransacking a village and raping, and killing everybody like we hope if they're doing what we generally think the military's doing, we hope that they are upholding the same kind of belief system that we have. And on the whole, they are. And the people that are involved in that, they're just the same as we are. They're just the same as we are. They feel the same way. There are some people that join the military because they just, they got a bad streak in them and they're not good. The military does tend to weedle them out quite quickly because they're just as dangerous as uh, any other kind of crazies. So, on the whole, people you think are doing what they're doing because they believe in a set of values and they realize this is where the rubber meets the road. When those people then get injured, when those people then come home, it must be important for us as a community to realize that these people need to be looked after no matter what. And so it really confuses me then to see that Remembrance Day is getting thinner and thinner and thinner and there's not so many people there and there's a lot older people there and you start to realize like I hope that the guess of the people who are not going to Remembrance Day who are not getting involved in the military I hope your guess that that defense is not required is definitely uh Correct. I hope that you're right. I really do. I really do. Because if you're wrong, it's going to get really bad for everybody because there's always been crazes in the world and thousands of years of history, right back to the Code of Hammurabi, uh, tells us that there's always been crazes and they always try and take over. So we have a right, if we're not, or not a right, we have a, a requirement on us that we either go and get involved in that 
or we do something else which is equally beneficial for our community, that some aspect of what we're doing is just helping out the socioeconomic kind of family ties, political situation that we're all involved in right now. Having a general basic like safety in my everyday, emotional safety, people aren't coming through the front door, um, nice running water, food to eat, money, that kind of general thing. Any of those things should be possible as long as everyone's kind of like bustling on together. That area of human philosophy and psychology, that's where I'm at. And I want to try and do something every day that bolsters that a little bit in my work. But the people that are here today who are going into battle are a special brand of young people who get it early on and are able to make a decision or are, yes, pushed into a decision. There's not much else for them to do, so they join the military. But once in there, they are part of a unit that goes and fights, we hope, on our behalf for the things that we generally all believe in, as have done generations of our fathers and mothers before us for hundreds of years. That's what Remembrance Day is about for me. It's to say, hey, we're all connected together here and whatever you're doing day to day, try and make this thing called freedom work out because the alternative is utterly awful, utterly awful. So that for me is Remembrance Day. That's a little bit of a rant. <laughs> hey, it's a podcast. You know what? I was sitting here, my partner had gone to the Remembrance Day thing and I, I brushed all her coat down and before she was going, so I had a black felt uh, coat. And uh, it reminded me of cleaning down my number ones when I was in the in the Navy. And then I started thinking hard about why didn't I go into the Navy? Why didn't I make that decision? And I remembered that it came back to Wilfred Owen and the stories that Wilfred Owen had, who was a political, philosophical um, mouthpiece trying to tell the truth of the times um, before anybody was willing to listen to it, i.e. dulciet decorum est, uh, pro patria mooring. It's fitting and sweet to your die for your country is basically McDonald's advertising on you're all going to get murdered. So um, the stories that came from then, I said, I'm going to read a couple of them now. I've got uh, here on the computer. I was first reading these about 14 or 15. I think now it's probably seen as like draconian and uh, Dickensian to, uh, to be making children uh, read and understand this kind of poetry. But I think the English teacher that did it for us um, had in mind that it was a very impactful age to be learning about this stuff. So the next poem I'm going to be reading by Wilfred Owen is called Disabled. And this is about a veteran's experience. It's a young person's experience. And all of this 30 odd minutes of me talking here is to, to get you to the point where you start to think of the characters in these poems, which were so important to me, which caused me to not join the military, but to try and do something else in my life, like the Outward Bound thing. That's why it made it so important to me that the characters in these poems are just real people. He's just talking about people like exactly you and I, okay? It's a while back now. It's a hundred years back, which seems like a lot, but they're very similar. So here, listen to this. He sat in a wheeled chair waiting for dark and shivered in his ghastly suit of gray, legless, sewn short at elbow. Through the park, voices of boys ran saddening like a hymn, voices of play and pleasure after day, till gathering sleep had mothered them from him. About this time, town used to swing so gay when glow lamps budded in the light blue trees and girls glanced lovelier as the air grew dim in the old times before he threw away his knees. Now he will never feel again how slim girls' waists are or how warm their subtle hands. All of them touch him like some queer disease now. There was an artist, silly for his face, for it was younger than his youth, 
last year. Now he is old. His back will never brace. He's lost his colour very far from here. Poured it down shell holes till the veins ran dry. And half his lifetime lapsed in the hot race. And leap of purple spurted from his thigh. One time he liked to blood smear down his leg. After the matches carried shoulder high, it was after football, when he'd drunk a peg, he thought he'd better join. He wonders why. Someone had said he'd look a god in kilts, that's why. And maybe too, to please his Meg. Aye, that was it, to please the giddy jilts. And he asked to join, he didn't have to beg. Smiling, they wrote his lie, aged 19 years. Germans he scarcely thought of. All their guilt and Austria's did not move him. And no fears of fear came yet. He thought of jeweled hilts for daggers in plaid socks, of smart salutes and care of arms and leave and pay arrears, esprit de corps and hints for young recruits. And soon he was drafted out with drums and cheers. Some cheered him home, but not as crowds cheer goal. Only a solemn man who brought him fruits, thanked him, and then inquired about his soul. Now he will spend a few sick years in institutes and do what things the rules consider wise and take whatever pity they may dole. Tonight he noticed how the women's eyes passed from him to the strong men that were whole. How cold and late it is. Why don't they come and put him into bed? Why don't they come? So as I said, they're pretty explicit poems. I think you can take it. It's a bit of a jolt when you realize he's talking about like someone's blood literally coming out into the shell holes. But that is a reality that he was transmitting. This is like a news report directly from 1917, 1918 about what was going on to people that is exactly the same as you and I. And yet that story is also exactly the story of a veteran who's come back from wars now. Wilfred Owen volunteered to go and get involved in the war. People volunteered to go and get involved in the military now. Do you think Wilfred Owen was walking in the door there thinking, well, I'm going to give my life up for king and country? No, he was thinking, dulciet decorum est pro patria mori. Like, it's, this is going to be cool. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to have a uniform and I'm going to fight for the things that we all believe in. And it's going to be fine. The reality of it when they got there is so much it damaged people's body and it damaged their psychology, it damaged their philosophy long term afterwards. Veterans deal with that all the time. Wilfred Owen had no clue what he was walking into and veterans now had no clue what they're walking into with the conflict that they got involved in. It's damaging long term. So what I wanted to do when I thought about all these things and got involved in um, Wilfred Owen's poetry and had a near miss with the military, I knew that the Outward Bound course was the thing I could do, and that really is, is where Spartan came from. Outward Bound morphed from being a quasi-militaristic um, organization that started in the 1940s. And it started because these very normal people who were volunteering or being constricted to go in and join this massive military effort to save all the general things that you and I have agreed now seem like pretty good. They went off and did this stuff. And what they realized is that these younger people going into the water uh, in, the, in the North Atlantic, even though they were younger and fitter and they're like 18, 19, they lowered the, um, they lowered the conscription level down to 18 
uh, in preparation for the Second World War. It was then everybody between 18 and 45 had to go and join up. Those people, they went and did that. They were out there on those ships and they, from where they'd come from in their lives, they didn't have the like, the vavavum, the chutzpah, the kind of like, I dare not say the word spirituality because I don't mean religion, but I just mean the, the kind of will to keep surviving when they went into those cold, frigid Atlantic waters, oftentimes injured or covered in diesel or burnt or whatever. They didn't have it in them to survive even when they were dragged out into lifeboats. What they started to realize very quickly with people that were surviving from these downed convoys in the North Atlantic, the lads that were going into the water were dying even when they were dragged up onto lifeboats. But the older fellows, and it was, you know, all men out there, the older guys who had a bit more life experience and had a bit more like grit essentially were able to survive in the boats even though they were you know two or three times older than these young lads so people started to realize like oh we got to deal with this like we got to start looking at people as more than just um you know software to the ship's hardware we got to start doing something so these people can survive it's obviously completely inhumane that they're dying so what did they do? They um, took the recommendation of a, he was actually a German educationist called Kurt Hahn, who had already left when he realized the rise of the Nazi party was happening in Germany, come over to the UK. I've spoken about him before. And he set up this thing called Outward Bound. And obviously your flag papa, the P flag, is your flag that you hoist when you are about to depart from the harbor. You are outward bound. You are departing from safety going out into the dangers of the sea. So that phrase outward bound, I think it gets kind of mixed in with outdoor activities or outdoor school or, but outward bound is a particular trademark property, which I decided to go and um, be a volunteer with them when I was uh, 18. I did that for a year. And then I went back and worked for them for a further five years later on in my twenties. But the courses that outward bound puts on are based today on the original course which was started by Kurt Hahn in Abu Dhabi when they started the first Outward Bound School and that was this drown proofing course where for 21 days these young men would go out and they'd do orienteering and all sorts of things up on the moors and the hills and running around and camping and making fire with sticks and that kind of stuff and then they'd do this solo experience where they'd be on their own for three days with just biscuits and water and they had these letters to their future selves they had to write and things that made them turn inwards and, and think more about themselves and the relationships around them they did some very challenging like abseiling but classic abseil which is the rope just wrapped around you and pretty hairy rock climbing in the 19. 40s with um, stiff leather boots with um, with nails driven into the bottom of them. They also every day went into cold water in, in these cotton pants and woolen jumpers and learned how to tread water for very long periods of time. Over 21 days, the idea was to get them to a point where they could tread water in a jumper and, um, and, and cotton trousers for two hours, which seems unbelievable, but most of them passed it. The final challenge, they would go upriver to where there was a sandbank on the last day of the course, the water level would start rising and it took about two hours for the incoming tide to sweep them to the school. So they learned how to tread water for two hours, but they also had this uh, experience of being out on the hills and problem solving and having to deal with interpersonal relationships and having their own um, moral judgment and their their practices as, a, as an everyday person in, in a group of people questioned and analyzed and it, at the end of it, it drove out young men who were able to survive in those difficult situations. The number of people dying in the lifeboats significantly went down. It was a very successful piece of training and was then in place for the whole of the rest of the war. 
So Outward Bound today as a trademark and licensed property is something which um, is still giving that same lesson to those who are lucky enough or able to go and get involved in the courses. And it's very simple in its way, because what of course it is, is the very first philosophy in Outward Bound, the very first um, instructional philosophy was let the experience speak for itself. Take people to the outdoors, put them through very real kind of challenging, testful situations, and basically let them develop a skill set for dealing with stressful, difficult situations. And then when they've done that emotionally and maybe physically as well and getting some little, you know, processes in place in their life, problem solving logistics, they can then fight other problems in their own lives, namely the things that are getting them down, the things that they're depressed about, the things that they're challenged by, the relationships that challenge them. All those things come out of training which was developed to make everyday people like you and I, who share the same beliefs as those people on those ships sinking in the Atlantic in 1939. And so I wanted to move this conversation through from this first thing of what does Remembrance Day mean for me through to um, what I'm trying to do about it with this Ocean Globe Race entry that's going on next year. Because uh, newsflash, there is an update from the Ocean Globe Race uh, Race Authority who say that they're gonna somewhat prematurely cut off entry for the division that our boats would be entered into because they've received no you know, wider interest. They've got two spots reserved, which basically is for me. And then there's other people circling as well. But obviously the charter industry has gone through a very difficult last 18 months. You all know my company, Spine Ocean Racing, we just basically didn't trade for nearly like 19 months, something like that. It was very, very difficult. So we're just out the other side of it now and we're starting to get interest and we've got uh, Round the Worlders booking now. We've now got four people booked on to be Round the Worlders um, for an event which is departing in June of 2023. And I think that um, what I'm starting to realize is that uh, if this date that's been given now by the race office is such, we need to very quickly recognize, okay, what is this race about, Chris? What are you trying to uh, make happen here? How is this connected to Veterans and Remembrance Day? And um, what do we need to do? That's the, that's the plan I'm, I'm trying to kind of communicate here. The deal was that the event was gonna be going on uh, departing June 2023, and that we could get our entries in at X day in 2022. Because they've had no concerted uh, laying down of deposits and, and, and reserving of places, they've said, okay, 1st of January next year, 2022, uh, we're going to cut off entry for this division if we don't get four entries. So I'm now like, uh, hang on, I've got a much bigger plan going on here, which I really want to see come through. And it's going to get um, messed up if the actual problem is I'm not communicating properly the scenario that we're in. So the connection. We have an ocean globe race which is going around the world. I worked for Outward Bound and in sail training for 20 years. I believe in Outward Bound and the things that it does and the kind of training that it does and that letting the experience speak for itself can have hugely positive effects on people dealing with post-traumatic stress, dealing with confidence issues, dealing with new physical situations where they've had amputations because of physical trauma um, in the field, whether they are military personnel or first responder personnel, whether they are people from other backgrounds in the community who have ended up with amputations or uh, tucked into particularly difficult PTSD situations. Is there a way 
for me to get them on the boats doing this event going around the world because everything I know about Outward Bound, all the training I've done and all the time I've spent at sea says that sail training can really help people in those situations. And whilst I didn't march off to war because I listened to Wilfred Owen, I have a lot of respect for people that um, put themselves out there in a very real sense to go and um, protect this general set of things that I and generations of my family have believed in and I think your family have believed in, they're going and doing it. I wanna help in my community to kind of hold all this together in a way, pay back to the community and going and doing this sailing thing with my outward bound sail training background is like, oh, I can see how I can do this. They've got a very specific issue and I know a method that very specifically can help where there's real world outcomes, like these are real waves, this is real wind, but then have that mediated by professionals who are able to dig beneath the surface a little bit and start to help people reconnecting with their everyday life, try and step down from hyper alert status all the time, start to reconnect with a family. A great way of going doing it for mission orientated military and near military type personnel, first responders, if they're dealing with long-term stress disorders, if they're dealing with new physical uh, circumstances after um, physical trauma, getting onto the boats, getting out to sea with the professional course based around what they're doing is an amazing way to do it. So we have Challenger, which can take 14 people, and we have Osprey, which can take 20 people. We have two crew on each boat. Um, that is commercial safety um, certification for those boats from the UK, all checked through, all safe, all 100% ready to go and made up to be like brand new sails, ropes, everything all tidied up. A lot of money has to go into that. So there's a cost for this. And I think that one thing that hasn't happened with this discussion about the Ocean Globe race, people sort of questioningly like saying, so um, how much is it? And I'm kind of coyly answering, well, you know, it's quite a lot. It's like we normally sell things with Spartan, which are between about uh, two thousand and four or five thousand dollars US. And these are crossings on big vessels, crossing across the Atlantic or getting involved in very famous races. And I understand from having done this for years, there are some people who can pay out that money um, and they'll come and get involved in those things, and others that don't. And of those people, someone to learn and someone to race. So I'm saying really these days with where I've moved to a Spartan now, I wanna go with people that wanna learn, they wanna voyage, they wanna do seamanship stuff. If there's an overall like big race happening, that's exciting, that's fun. You know, that's a, that's a really cool thing to get involved in. But uh, I'm not gonna like be killing myself to try and win a cup for racing around the world. I wanna do it, I want it to be safe, I want it to be fashionable, I want it to be um, well insured and I want the um, people on board to be skillful at what they do and having already done this before. So that's what I'm trying to put together. And I want the people that go on to that, if possible, to be people that at least half of the boats, like two of the boats, it's people who are sponsored to be there, who are from this section of people in our community who have been much closer to the front line, because I recognize if I went and did that, it would mess me up really badly and I would need time to decompress and come back to my family and come back to myself. And I know that because sailing solo around the world directly eight weeks after sailing around the world with um, with the Clipper race, uh, and I've spoken about this before and I'll do it again, uh, on the way down the Atlantic on the second lap of the planet, I did a, to give you an idea, 100,000 miles in 18 months at sea, right? It was totally insane with all the training for Clipper, for all of the Clipper race, and then everything that we did with Velux and the race, 
it ended up being 100,000 nautical miles in 18 months. You can, and it was just too much. And halfway down the Atlantic, I literally had, um, I just started crying and crying and crying. I could not stop crying and literally put a fleece blanket over my head. And in one form or another, just cried and slept and cried and slept for three days in the bottom of the boat while it sailed under a reduced sail plan uh, on autopilot down the Atlantic doing this solo around the world race. Um, I was clearly emotionally in a place that was um, too much for me. It was uh, I as a normal person with the same kind of basic political and ideological view as you with the same connections with family, people around me and dreams and hopes and everything. It just became too difficult to deal with the problems that were mounting up and the things that I wanted versus the things that were realistic for me and the situation I kind of got tucked into, um, the, the emotional stress that had been on me with things. It just ended with just a breakdown. I think, you know, there's all sorts of words for it, but a nervous breakdown is what happened. We all kind of know roughly what that means. It's where you just emotionally lose the plot. Uh, I'm doing polyphasic sleeping all the time, which means we're only sleeping about three or four hours uh, a day in 20 minute uh, blocks. It's that kind of sleep deprivation would be used not necessarily for torture. People say, oh, sleep deprivation is used for torture. It's not actually used for torture. It's used for information extraction because it makes people Yes, it is bad. You feel bad. But Jesus, you know, I'd much rather have sleep deprivation than, um, you know, <laughs> being burnt or cut or something awful. Right. It's not torture. It is a technique which makes you emotionally unstable and emotionally unable to rationalize what's going on. So that plus the stress I was already feeling was a perfect storm for me to just there was nothing else I could get involved in. I had no way out of it. And that depression from that, I did keep going, but the depression from that and from being at that low, it wasn't like I had a nervous breakdown. Then I felt fine the next day. Like, woohoo, now I'm really cooking on gas. Woo, it's just like popping a spot. That's not what happens. Is You hit a low and you either do something crazy and try and stop your life, which is very negative thing. There's always a way out. If you do perceive there's a way out, you can then start to, but you're still in this alien, weird, strange land where emotionally you've just gone beyond caring about a lot of the stuff that's around you. You're just tucked up tight with this intellectual mind space. Now, I think for people that are on a boat at sea with all the dangers and all the work and the noise and the stress and the speed and the polyphasic sleeping, it's a bit like having a big meal and then trying to run a marathon. You can hit the wall at mile five. It's, you know, it's a great way of training for a marathon in my concept of running, where you just have a load of beers with your mates and then try and run home. And that's like hitting the wall there without having to do the 22 miles. You can have the psychological breakthrough really early on if you're very unfit. <laughs> but emotionally, you know, you're still panting after you've had your emotional breakthrough. But with the polyphasic sleeping, we can hit that threshold much earlier on and learn to learn to deal with it perhaps before it's so bad that the only way out is to do something crazy so that's my experience of being in a very dark place um not least also when i got back from two two and a half uh, years going and doing that stuff trying to then settle myself back into everyday life i was going and being a, uh, a mechanic working on boats essentially like you can say it's a first class technician or whatever you want to brand it as but basically i was mechanicing on boats uh, at Simpson Marine in Hong Kong. And yes, they're a superior agent. So you can say, I was a first class technician at a superior agency in Hong Kong. Yeah, but I was also mechanicing on boats. So the reality was, I was mechanicing on boats, having just come back from sailing around the world and was starting to write blogs and was starting to do things with TV, but nothing was happening. Um, and I had had a nervous breakdown like nine months earlier. 
The major relationship in my life was over. My father um, was extremely ill now with brain cancer and he as a person had kind of come to the end of him being the same as I remembered him. Um, my mother's life had changed dramatically. Um, I had moved countries. I had almost no friends at that time. And I was in a place where I felt very alienated from what was going around me. I was living in Hong Kong, which I did know Hong Kong, but didn't know that area of it. And um, it wasn't really normal for me. I'd been, I, I'd worked in Outward Bound for, uh, I'd worked in Hong Kong for Outward Bound, which meant that I was out in tents and out in the wilderness all the time or on a boat at sea or in a kayak expedition or something. Coming back and living in Hong Kong, just being downtown in Hong Kong was a very different experience. So I was feeling very alienated from that. And um, I remember at the time talking to somebody, uh, talking to a psychologist, and they were pointing out the fact that it's very similar for veterans coming back from a battlefield. You've just seen things and done things which nobody around you has any clue about. You may be physically injured by that. You may have gone through very acute psychological states which have left a, a lasting effect, a post-traumatic stress disorder right so we say ptsd all the time but what do those letters actually mean people end up like having to deal with stuff for years some of the veterans that were there in their wheelchairs and their dark and sunglasses in those 1990s um uh, remembrance day parades i went to they didn't get any like counseling for any of that they didn't get any awareness of of what it is to have gone through that horror the things that if you're feeling a little bit upset about the poem i read earlier about um the uh disabled and, and blood going down his uh, going down the shell holes that's reality that's that's the equivalent of um you know we don't want to know what happens in avatars we like sausages we don't want to know what happens in those places we like bacon and that's what it is with war dulce et decorum est pro patria mori it's fitting and sweet yeah the pigs are super happy before they go on in yeah no, it'll never happen to you except for if you get a letter through the door it ha it's never going to happen. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah, no problem. It happened 100 years ago and it happened 80 years ago and um, the, all the laws are still in place that so can happen again now. It's like Remembrance Day is remembering that we're not disconnected from things that have gone on before, that stuff that we do on a day-to-day -day should add up to something positive to keep us all in that general, centralized, happy place where we're at. So when I bring this back to the Ocean Globe race, we're in a situation now where I want to get people to, there's a lot of people who are listening to this, who have written to me, who have uh, signed up for the newsletter on the website, who are like, yeah, I'd love to do that. This is a big event with lots of boats involved. We're going to be racing, but we're going to be keeping it super safe. We're going to be using our professional crews. We're going to have professional level boats. And I thought that there was definitely like phew, a good year really till we had to have this buttoned up. We only started trading with um, Spartan about four or five weeks ago now, started getting bookings through the website. Um, we've already got the Newport Bermuda is full. The Regatta del Sol al Sol is full. Um, the trip that's going up to the Faroe Islands is filling up quickly, as is, I'm very interested, the one that goes from Iceland back to Newfoundland, which I was wondering if that was too long, but people, they had not done that voyage before. They fancy the challenge. Um, yeah, I'm excited to do that one as well. So that's all happening, but then I'm looking ahead to the Ocean Globe race in June of, uh, of 2023 and thinking I had this dream to have two boats where they are uh, the veterans are on board there getting this experience regardless of their financial background. Now, none of this stuff comes cheap. And again, uh, it comes down to that thing of like, well, how much is it? It's 93,000 Canadian dollars. That's 77,000 US dollars or it's um, 63,000 euros or 55,000 pounds. And I've picked that because that's what it is in the marketplace. <laughs> like, I, I, I feel like coy talking about this to some people before, and I just had a bit of a moment this morning. I'm like, hang on, there's a process going on here, which is better for people to understand. If we can get the money in to pay for this event, 
then we'll be able to pay all the deposits we need to pay that have now been asked for early on the 1st of January by the Ocean Globe Race Organization because they're nervous about whether this will fly or not because the charter companies were all holding off because of COVID. That string of things brings us down to this point. If you want to go and do this, it's a big event. There's going to be over 40 boats involved. It's going and uh, doing the original route of the original uh, Whitbread race in 1973. It's going Southampton to Cape Town, Cape Town to either Australia or New Zealand. They're keeping it open, obviously, with COVID. We don't know what's going on down there. But one of those and then up to um, Italia in uh, South America and then on from there back to Europe. So it's an absolutely classic round the world route. And we want to be professional and we want to learn and we want to take out the other side of it what good sail training should take which is development of us as people and a new perspective on the world and a new group of friends and a new way of seeing things and all that stuff. That's what I want to take out of it. It's the kind of thing that people need having been through very, very traumatic situations as many veterans have because they're just the same kind of people that we are with the same kind of ideas as we've got, the same general outlook. And it's been like this for hundreds of years and we know now how to help those people. So how do we do this? What I think is that we have two boats where we have open enrollment, where if you want to go all the way around the world, it's 55,000 pounds. It's 77,000 US dollars. That amount takes you all the way around the world. It Realistically, you're going to have to have some more money as well because you're going to have to do the training beforehand. Um, you're going to have to get yourself to and from the training. Uh, we're going to give you waterproofs. So we're going to give you life jackets and a, like a kit bag and stuff and a discount from Heli Hansen. And so we'll do that. Um, but you're going to have to have some money unless, you know, you want to stay on the boat every night in port and all the places you get to. And if you want to eat like basic rations on the boat every night, that sea rations, like we're just providing the boat and the boat, everything about the boat is it. We're not doing like hotels or transfers or anything like that. You pay for that stuff, but you can make it really, really basic if, if the money aspect is a problem. But how long is it going to take? And it's set off in June of 2023. It's about nine months. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's going to be great. But the thing is that pressure's on us now um, to, to get this in. I think if we can get the, like, the, the commercial side of it where people are paying to be on board, um, then I've got enough time and enough momentum that I can get sponsorship for the veterans to go on the other two boats. And we know we have four boats and the class is definitely on so we can make that room for these people that really need it, veterans from the here and now today, people who have been affected by... Uh, violence who have been affected by being a first responder or being in the military who have been damaged by that because they're basically the same as you with the same geopolitical kind of ideas about the world, the same connections with people, the same uh, worry that that might be lost. They went and got involved in it and it's left them very damaged and we have to help them out if we can. We're sailors. Putting them on boats is a good way of doing it. There's lots of research to back that up. So I'm going to finish this by taking us into uh, another Wilfred Owen um poem which uh, was was very important to me and it's the one which um, I've been kind of mentioning towards all the way through the podcast I actually know this one off by heart it's called Dulciet Decorum Est Popatria Mori I'll come back a little bit at the end of this and then I'll leave you to make your own decision if you want to go around the world and help support people who have been through the kind of things that we're this hundred year old poem is talking about um if you are thinking of going, now's the time to act. Make contact with me. There's lots of ways through the website, through Facebook, through Instagram, through Twitter, through LinkedIn, through um, the website and signing for the newsletter there, registering there. Um, it is already on the website. There's a lot of information. We're going to be adding to that quickly in the next couple of days. We only found out about this change from the race office 
yesterday, I oh know two days ago, sorry, two days ago, and I've already talked to the race office. They're very happy to say, yeah, four boats in, you've definitely got a division. If we can get four boats in, it might be that success will follow success and other boats will join when they realize that there's a, uh, a division there and that um, their business gets going. But I've got this ability to talk to you guys and then you can share it on to other people, share the concept. There's over 1,000, 1,500 people listening to this each month. If you are interested in sailing around the world on an 80-foot maxi, with me or with Marcus Charlotte and Brown. If that money is something that you can get together, we can do repayment plans over time and all that kind of stuff, of course. I'll try and help whoever I can. If you've got any concepts for sponsorship or how we can do this, if everyone comes together and acts, then perfect. What normally happens in these situations is, is the 99-1 rule. 90 people, well, 100 people listen, 90 people go, huh, and do nothing. Nine kind of like a vaguely interested will maybe email or do something, and one will do something like where actually action happens, rubber meets road, right? So what we need to do is like push that statistic back a little bit. If you wanna go around the world in 2023 in June, and you are see what I'm saying about, let's get four boats in and just make it happen, we can do that. So if any of that sounds interesting, get in contact, you know the ways now. And I'll leave you with this poem by Wilfred Owen, 100 years old and still making all the sense in the world. Dulcet decorum est, popatria mori. Bent double, like old beggars under sacks, knock need, coughing like hags, we curse through sludge. Till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, and deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas, gas, quick boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime, as dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dream, you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil sick of sin, if you could hear, at every jolt, the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud, of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell, with such high zest, to children, ardent for some distant glory, the old lie, dulciet decorum est, propatria more. Okay, well, I'm going to wrap things up here. You are interested in sailing around the world. You get what we're trying to do. You have your own reasons why you want to go and you have that money available and it, the time period works for you. If you were thinking of doing it, here's the call. If we want to make it happen, we have to make it happen uh, in the next four weeks. You've got to register your interest to be on the crew, whether it's doing a leg. Just send me a quick note. Hi, it's me. This is what I want to do. Yes, I understand how expensive it is. This is the bit I want to do, or I want to go around the world. We've already got four round the worlders um, signed up for Challenger. So we're looking at minimum six round the worlders for Challenger going up to 10. We still want to have some people on board for the legs. And in the process of choosing to commit to it now, 
help a large group of other people who really need it. So there we go. A funny mixed podcast from me this week, under an hour and a half though. Uh, some interesting um, things coming up for me out of Remembrance Day here today. And I wanna, I'm more fired up than ever to make this happen. If you can help out, then please get in contact and, uh, and be part of what we're doing. There we go. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound and enjoying whatever the day today has brought for you. Spare a little of a moment for those who have gone before to look after all the things that you hold dear. Remember that you are part of a lot of people that all feel the same way about how this is roughly working out is good. That's good enough to fight for. We don't have to all be on the same side all the time as long as we all recognize what a wonderful situation we're in. I'm sure we can uh, not require our military personnel and go and do any more on our behalf. But for those who already have, we want to try and help. So I'll leave you with that thought. Speak to you in the next one. Cheers.